You're listening to Labor Wave Radio. an independent podcast producing bi-weekly content that discusses work and labor organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. If you enjoy the show, please become a subscriber to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash laborwave. Based on your membership tier, you'll receive gifts including original stickers, illustrated zines, and laborwave t-shirts. If you can't support the show in monetary terms, you can still support us by following our content on social media and liking and giving us reviews on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud, as that helps us reach new listeners. Laborway Radio is also now a featured podcast on the Channel Zero Network, which is an anarchist radio podcast network. You can find all the podcasts featured on Channel Zero Net at channelzeronetwork.com. You're about to listen to a re-release with a conversation we did with Bill Fletcher Jr. on the State of Unions after the Janus versus AFSCME decision back in 2018. Now, for folks that might not be familiar, Janus versus AFSCME was a decision made by the Supreme Court, which rendered it illegal for public sector unions to collect what are called agency fees. Agency fees refer to money collected for the cost of representation and bargaining among workers included in the unit of a public sector union. So Bill Fletcher Jr. and I talked about how much did that decision impact unions negatively or positively and where were the prospects moving forward. But before getting to the episode, I'm going to read a question that I received in an email this week. It was a question about labor organizing. And if you have any questions as listeners that you would like to just have read on the show and I can do my best to provide any insights or maybe pose it to a guest in the future, please do so by sending them to laborwavenews at gmail.com. I'm not going to name the person that sent this question just because it sounds like they're the very beginnings of a union organizing campaign, but they wrote, My workplace is just getting started on unionizing and looking for a good first action to gauge how many people we can get on board. But things like wearing a particular color don't seem as effective in a remote setting. We are mostly remote and spread out all over the U.S. with some employees based on other countries. We mostly interact over Slack or Zoom. Do you have any advice about structure tests for distributed companies? Okay, so definitely organizing in a remote setting is really tough. And I don't know that I'm necessarily the best person even to provide feedback on this, though basically every union at the onset of the pandemic has really had to recalibrate and figure out how to do a lot of digital organizing, me included. But before trying to dig into like what are possibilities for structure tests, I just want to zoom out a little bit and just talk about this concept of a structure test, because I have my doubts about structure tests in certain settings. Now, This is what the idea is, and it's been really made popular by labor organizer and writer Jane McAlevey. McAlevey says that in any organizing campaign, you have to test the commitment levels of the workers themselves to follow through on particular tasks and obligations of building a union. Classic examples are, like mentioned in the email, 
wearing certain t-shirt colors on the same day, like the Red for Ed teachers movement, or signing a public petition, or putting your face on a flyer or leaflet that gets distributed around the company. All these things I think would be considered structure tests. And the idea is that you test how many folks will follow through on a particular ask before you know that you have the capacity to escalate the intensity of the campaign and really start engaging in more serious escalation activities, such as a strike. So you have to do all these structure tests all the way up to a strike in order to make sure that if you try to execute a strike, you'd actually be successful. Because if you know, like, oh, we tried to do this t-shirt day, but only 50% of the workforce actually participated, you're probably going to recalibrate where you go next or figure out how to get more engagement and more buy-in. I think all of that makes a lot of sense. The idea that there's a methodology to organizing and escalation and that you really need to have hard data to figure out what the support levels are at any particular moment in union organizing. But I have to admit, I think it makes more sense for unions that already are recognized formally or are already de facto recognized. Like if there's already a union that has a foothold in a workplace, it's already established, they've already gained concessions, and it's sort of normalized more or less, the risk factor goes down and doing things like building structure tests around maybe contract negotiations or a particular hot issue on the shop floor. Okay, I get that in that scenario. But if you're talking about a good first action to gauge how much support you might have in a union campaign where the union doesn't exist yet, like you're trying to actually do what we call external organizing, building a new union that actually hasn't been constituted in some way, either de facto or de jure in the workplace, I think structure tests can be really risky. If there is a way to do a structure test that's not a public demonstration of lack of support, for instance, then maybe I'd be more amenable to it. But say you try to do something like t-shirt days and you make it public and this is like one of the first things you've done organizing and it's also the first indication that the boss has that you're unionizing. Well, if you don't get a lot of people participating in it, or even if you do get a lot of people participating in it, you're out of the shadows now. You're in the public. The boss knows what's going on and they are going to aggressively fight it. You have to be prepared for the retaliation and the potential consequences of being more above ground in your organizing. So that, that's my word of caution. If you're trying to gauge interest, I would say do it in a way that you can make it reasonably underground. But I know that you're a remote worker, so that might be a lot harder. But even things like just scheduling private Zoom calls one-on-one -on -one with your coworkers if you're talking over Slack and Zoom already, it seems reasonable to me that you can try to figure out a way to just ask somebody casually to talk to you outside of work time, but still on Slack or Zoom about a particular issue you might have. I would say that's more of an indication of levels of support and levels of organizing capacity than any kind of like willy nilly structure test. A structure test where maybe you try to get people to put a new image in their Zoom background. Which, by the way, I'll give you some of the tactics that I've heard people use through remote organizing, and that's one of them. Putting up an image in your Zoom profile account all at the same time in front of the managers shows a level of solidarity and support for some specific cause. You can even make it say particular things. That could be an action that you do over 
digital organizing. I've also heard of a lot of campaigns that put in a reasonable amount of effort and success in doing like phone blast or something that I participated in with my former union employer was what we called the ring of fire, where it was digital because of the pandemic, but we still were able to put real world pressure on management by basically going to their houses and leafleting and like posting up flyers and shaming them in front of all their neighbors and even doing car caravans to their house during negotiations to just make them feel our presence. Things like that, I think are actions available to you in remote organizing. But all that to say, scale it back a little bit and realize like, Like the one-on-one conversation, even in a digital setting, is the primary means that you should be organizing and the primary means that you should be gauging support. If you get somebody to talk to you over Zoom or in some other setting, even over the phone, one thing you can ask them to do to gauge support is follow up with you to talk to another person, like get a third person in the call and keep participating that way. If people are willing to follow through and even just talk to their coworkers about potentially unionizing or any kind of organizing activities, that's all the support you really need to know at this juncture. Once you get to the point where you have enough people on board and you do need to decide whether it's time to engage in direct action or do something more above ground, I'd say be very calculated about it, be very strategic about it. And recognize some of the consequences. If you're geared towards going public, which there's a lot of debate about whether or not it's even useful to go public, think about one of the key points of leverage that you lose, and that is secrecy. Currently, your managers know nothing about the organizing, and that is leverage that you have. You have the advantage. You can keep organizing on your own timeline without the boss ever knowing what capacity you have who you've been talking to, whether those folks are on board, and what issues they really have that they are planning on resolving through collective action. You lose that when you go above ground. So all that is my meandering response to this email. I really appreciate the question, and I hope that was somewhat useful, although I recognize I basically just told you, don't do any structure test. Just start talking to people one-to-one. And that's kind of like a broken record form of advice. So I will warn any future emailers to LaborWave Radio that organizing questions, when it comes down to it, I probably am going to recommend you just have a one-on-one with as many coworkers as possible. But that's not the only thing I'm going to say. So for this writer, okay, structure test, just think about whether it's appropriate for your type of campaign. If you're organizing from the ground up and you're not already above ground in public, maybe you don't want to do very visible actions or activities in front of management. But if you do, and you think that you and hopefully you got a committee together around all this are ready to launch some above ground actions, well, phone blasts have a place in pressuring management. If you get their personal numbers and just come up with a strategy around hitting them with as many phone calls from as many different people as possible, even maybe getting some supporters from the outside to do lend some weight to that. That can be something that at least makes them hear you. There's also the Zoom profile pictures. There's the ring of fire. That's just really the idea of circling your managers in their daily lives as much as possible. Everywhere they go, make it to where they have to feel your presence. That can be by finding out where they get their coffee and like kind of heckling them in line a little bit. 
making sure that they know that you're unhappy with your working conditions. It can be leafleting their neighbors. It can be doing a car caravan to their house with making a bunch of noise and holding a bunch of signs. Things like that I've seen be effective. There's also what used to be referred to as the inside strategy in organizing. And today, I think that's commonly talked about in terms of working to the rule or doing work slowdowns. Uh, That could be a particular escalation action that might be useful for your workplace, particularly a digital workplace. If there are ways you can figure out to follow the rules of the workplace to a T that actually have the consequence of kind of monkey wrenching the workplace or slowing it down in some way. Work to rule tactics are pretty effective or can be pretty effective. Sometimes they backfire. And there's also like the slowdowns, the sick outs. There's lots of other ways to still make your labor be felt. And almost all labor organizing needs to really revolve around a power analysis that understands your greatest leverage is in your labor. And in your collective labor, withdrawing your collective labor is your power. Causing the company some economic harm and generating solidarity, that's what labor organizing is all about. I hope that was helpful. Really appreciate the question. And if any other listeners out there want to just ask general questions about organizing or even just questions about how your workplace operates and whether certain policies seem on the level, go ahead and send them to laborwavenews at gmail.com. Or you could send them to me on Facebook or Twitter or even Instagram. With that, hope you enjoy the episode. First question I wanted to ask you. Mm-hmm. We just had the Janus versus Acne decision. A lot of people predicted that it was going to destroy public sector unions. But actually, it looks like membership is holding and in some places even increasing. Is that an optical illusion or do you think that we're actually stronger than we thought? I think that it's analogous to the Y2K uh, situation where um, up till the year 2000, there was a growing panic about what will happen in the year 2000. And so what you had is a lot of IT firms, governments, et cetera, taking preventative measures that ultimately meant that Y2K was nothing. I mean, there was some minor problem. So I think that what happened in anticipation, first of Friedrichs and then Janus, is that a number of unions, not all for sure, began to take steps to address the problem of their laziness, which was, uh, you know, their over-reliance on agency shop. And, you know, unions like the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, the Service Employees International Union, AFSCME and others made some significant changes. Now, I, I think that that's really good and very important, but it's not enough. Uh, because what we have to understand is that it's great that we stopped a blowout, but what we have to understand is that there are going to be new workers coming in to our workplaces. And if the proper work is not done with them, uh, when they come in or within a few months of their entry, uh, they will be lost. 
because and and we have to understand it's it's in a context where union membership has dropped to what eleven percent of the workforce. So many workers uh, have no knowledge of union, which is why I wrote that book. Uh, they're bankrupting us and twenty other myths about union. So unions can't rest comfortably or easy with the situation. There has to be an immense amount of education, but I would argue that there needs to be more than that, which goes to the issue of vision. Yeah, well, table and vision for now, I'm kind of wondering um, about the likelihood that organized labor will heed the calls that you've made in the past for transforming into deep organizing models of social justice unionism. So like mentioning Y2K and how the preparation was done in a lot of mm-hmm. places to prevent Janice from being a catastrophe. Right. Since the catastrophe didn't happen, do you think organized labor is going to wake up? Or do you ah. think that this is just going to be like the walking business model will continue to move on? I would say uh, the smart money will say that most unions will pop the cork and cry victory and will become complacent once again. That's where I think, I think it's smart money. Now, having said that, I think that there are a number of unions and local unions that realize that something different has to be done. So I think that the responses are going to be very uneven. The problem when it comes to organized labor is a problem that I always analogize by telling the story about the guy that jumped off the Empire State Building. And as he fell past the 50th floor, he was overheard saying, so far, so good. And, and therein lies the problem that, you know, that you have a lot of these unions that unless they've completely crashed, they, they continue to think it's not that bad. It's analogous to the larger problem we have in the Trump era, where, you know, people are, people have been saying it's bad, but it could be worse. And that's right. It could be worse. We could all be in concentration camps. I mean, it's absolutely the case, but that ends up becoming a way of becoming once again complacent. So I, I actually do worry. Uh, I'm very concerned about this. And I think that. There is a need for continued urgency. So why is there such complacency? Like, I think that drawing the comparison to Trump is really appropriate because what I've noticed since the midterm elections is a lot of triumphalism of the Democrat Party. And Mm -hmm. even, even before the government shut down, everybody was praising Pelosi for speaking firmly to Trump as though that was a victory. And then the shutdown happened anyway. So they're completely disconnected from average, ordinary people in this country, Mm -hmm. the Democrat Party leadership. Why is the leadership of organized labor so similarly complacent? Well, I would challenge challenge you on a couple of things. First of all, it's the Democratic Party, not the Democrat Party. It's important because that was something that the Republicans started saying. I'm not quite sure why they started saying it. But the I would frame it somewhat differently. I think that 
the midterm elections were overall a very important victory. But there remains a battle going on for the soul of the Democratic Party. And that battle pits progressives against the Democratic Party establishment. And the Democratic Party establishment would like a return to what they see as the good old days, where there were sort of established protocols that were respected between the parties, um, that it was clear that everyone was out for the best interests of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have the progressives in the Democratic Party that are saying, no such luck. We need a different vision. Much, is it, uh, much of that could be said about the struggle within organized labor. That you have a trade union establishment that particularly post-Taft-Hartley post came to believe in a certain conception of trade unionism where the parameters were narrow, but where they believed that they continued to have some sort of legitimacy. And I think you can look specifically after, you know, the mid-1970s with the assaults that took place against workers, that the establishment within organized labor had a hell of a time coming to grips with the fact that there was, in fact, a war against workers. And it was, it was, uh, the other side was relentless in its attacks. So the establishment, much of the establishment of organized labor has sought a reestablishment of a modus vivendi with capital. And they have been scared when there are those within organized labor that say, that there won't be a new deal like we had in the 1930s. It's going to be a very different situation. Uh, we have to fight in a very different way. And despite the fact that the leaders of organized labor realize that we've been losing, they remain fearful that the progressive wing within the movement will close off the possibilities of, in that case, uh, establishing a new modus vivendi. Therein lies the problem. And so that means that at certain points, there are forces within the organized labor establishment, people I would identify as pragmatists or center forces, who are willing to unite with those of us on the left because they know that we are hardworking, they know our commitment, and they need us. But they want to make sure they don't want us to be leading. Now, we need them, but we don't need them leading, them meaning the center, because they're out of ideas, to put it in a crassus term. Yeah, they lack a vision. They lack a 21st century vision, they lack a vision that really appreciates class struggle. They lack a vision that 
incorporates understanding the nature of a reconstructed global capitalism and what that means for building solidarity for workers across borders. Their views are basically archaic. And even that's being flattering. Um, well, on this note, in the book that you co-authored with uh, Dr. Fernando Capassin called Solidarity Divided, The Crisis in Organized Labor and a New Path Towards Social Justice, the two of you articulated the possible vision for organized mm -hmm. labor, and you called it social justice unionism. Mm -hmm. Could you maybe just give a definition of what that means? Sure. Let me, let me answer that by describing sort of the context that we were operating within. So as the crisis facing the trade union movement was becoming more apparent in the late 1980s, early 1990s in the U.S., there were, there was, there were growing calls for a different approach to trade unionism. And one approach was called the organizing model. And basically what this was, was refocusing the work of the unions on mobilizing their base and conducting struggle. And this was certainly more progressive than what had existed, which was the business unionism that you described, but it really wasn't enough. Following that, there was a greater call for organizing the unorganized. And again, in both cases, drawing certain examples from the 1930s. And this was positive, but it wasn't enough. It was, it was what Fernando and I referred to as the reinflation of a tire phenomena. You know, it's like, you know, you have a slow leak and you come out in the morning, you know, the tire is low. So you go to the gas station, fill up your car, right? With the, with the air, fill up the tire. Go around the rest of the day, everything's fine. Next morning, full leak again. Go back to the gas station. Now, you can keep doing this for a while until you have a catastrophic blowout, or until you patch the tire, or until you change the tire entirely. And so one of the problems with the approaches that were initially recommended was that it was essentially the equivalent of filling the tire with air, not patching the leak, not replacing the tire, just filling it with air. Then what happened was uh, something that is sometimes called social movement unionism, which is sometimes interchangeable with what Gapacin and I are talking about. But when it is not, what it is is the idea of mobilization, uh, building alliances outside of the trading framework uh, with community-based groups, et cetera. All very, very good things. Gapacin and I felt like that wasn't enough. And that what really was called upon was that a recognition that we really had been dealing with this restructuring of capitalism. and in order for the movement to experience a renaissance, it has to establish 
in effect, a new vision. And that vision includes expanding our understanding of the labor movement to be beyond established trade unions. Needs to include domestic workers' organizations, worker centers, etc. That in addition, the vision can't simply be wages, hours, and working conditions, which is what Samuel Gompers identified as the thrust of trade unionism, but that we really have to be looking at what are the demands of the working class and how do we, as a trade union movement that is not a political party, um, but how do we as a trade union movement become part of building a progressive block that can be part of fighting for the power of working people. And that means a union movement, among other things, that addresses everything from healthcare to housing to economic development. Um, to borrow from, there was this uh, leader of the Teamsters Union in St. Louis named Gibbons, Harold Gibbons, who had this idea that was called whole worker unionism, something like that. And he, and, and he had a very famous statement, which is that we have to have a union movement that addri- addresses the other 16 hours in a worker's life. And, and so what that means, in effect, is we need a unionism that is addressing the economic issues and other issues that people are facing in the workplace, but also addresses the challenges that working class people face. Now, this is much easier said than done, as Gibbon's experience in St. Louis demonstrated. But that's the direction that we need to go. And we describe that as social justice unionism. It's breaking consciously with Gomper's notion of what was called, what has been called pure and simple unionism or bread and butter unionism. sounds too like in social justice unionism one thing that would have to change is the self-identity of union members or like how people understand their union as a vehicle for either workplace improvement or whole worker improvement i'm wondering with this wave of teacher strikes that we're seeing and also at the time we're speaking we're predicting another teacher strike to take off in los angeles among mm-hmm. the etla some folks like Titi Bhattacharya and Chinchula Rutsa have described these as feminist class struggles and pretty interesting. 
Do you think that these indicate the emergence of social justice unionism? I think that we we have seen experiments in social justice unionism going back a long time. There were left-led unions in the 1930s and 40s that had elements of this, like the packing out workers. And many of them were crushed in the Cold War witch hunts. We've seen in the uh, in roughly 1998 to 2000 in Stanford, Connecticut, the Stanford Organizing Project that Jane McAlevey led, um, I think was an example of a prototype to social justice unionism, organizing workers, but also making trade unionism an economic development issue. So, yes, with the, with the teachers' strikes, I think we're seeing, we're seeing that particularly, excuse me, looking at what the teachers in LA are fighting for, um, and what the teachers in Chicago, the Chicago Teachers Union clearly is, um, trying to put into practice what I would argue to be social justice unionism and has done an exemplary job. No one's perfect, but they've done a really, really good job. These uh, teacher wildcats that have taken place around the country have been exceptionally important and exciting. But they've got to build permanent organization, and they, they really need to develop internal education programs that help their members understand the broader context. You know, when I hear some of these teachers in, in the, that have conducted Wildcat talk about being Republicans or in some cases having voted for Trump. It's like we, we, we have problems. And, and clearly people have the capacity to have contradictory ideas in their head. But when you engage in this level of struggle, when you're trying to think through the longer term, we've got to spend time educating our members so that they understand who are our friends and who are our enemies. There can be no ambiguity about that. Yeah, and some of the other methods that you've described in your book, Solidarity Divided Again, in terms of getting to social justice unionism beyond education and building permanent institutions, is the biggest call is to organize at the level of an entire city. Mm. And I'm really, really fascinated by this, this call for action. And um, I know in the book, you all just said, we don't know how to organize at entire cities. But now that you've had some more time for reflection, I'm wondering, how do we organize entire cities? What does that even look like? Let me explain why we came up with this about organizing cities. In the 19th century in the United States, the union movement during much of the 19th century organized cities, organized um, companies, but on a fairly narrow basis. The first labor parties on earth were in the United States, and they were uh, citywide, city party. And, and then over time, the, as as capitalism changed in many ways, 
there came to be a focus on the need to organize industry. So Gapacine and I would say that we, we absolutely need to continue to organize industry. In fact, we need to think internationally or transnational about that project. But the other part of it is that we have a working class that is becoming less rooted in individual jobs and much more free-floating. And what some people call, and I think they've uh, exaggerated the term, the gig economy, but you have a situation where, uh, as this cartoon says, uh, said years ago, I knew I'd have to work more than one job in my lifetime. I didn't realize I'd have to work 20 jobs at the same time. And so you have a situation where workers, as opposed to going to work at General Motors or Chrysler or USX or whatever, and that's the only job that they have or where they can expect to retire from, you have people working for more than one job or they're working for a certain period of time and then they're shifting. And one of the implications of that is that people don't necessarily feel any great identification with a particular employer. I don't mean identification in the sense of um, open class collaboration. I mean more in the sense of I work for Ford Motor, that type of thing. And one of the ways that this is translated out, and there's some studies that have been conducted recently, is that among millennials, there's this tendency to just like abandon jobs. You know, just like no notification to the employer, it's just like they're gone. And while some people are trying to create a whole psychological narrative to this, and there may be some, the larger thing is that capital, particularly as, as uh, unions have weakened, has displayed it has no loyalty to its workforce and that its workforce is completely expendable, which was always the case, but it was mass to a great extent in the post-World War II period. So one of the things that the union movement has to think about is that the identity of workers is not necessarily going to be based on a particular company, may not even be based on a particular industry, but that people are finding themselves both atomized as well as part of a larger bowl of mush. And that our job is to try to bring, to help this working class become self-aware. And the context for many of our fights will be citywide. And this will be over things like economic development. It will be over, you know, whether cities, whether we resist the racial and class cleansing of our city and what becomes the instrument to oppose that. And I would argue that the union needs to be one of the main instruments to oppose that.
You're listening to a Channel Zero Network podcast. The Channel Zero Network is a decentralized network of anarchist podcasts, bringing you analysis of current events, media criticism, rebellious music, interviews with academics and authors, how-tos, and so much more. This is The Final Straw Radio, a weekly anarchist and anti-authoritarian radio show broadcasting out of occupied Saligi land in southern Appalachia. Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. What's up, y'all? I'm Pearson, host of Coffee with Comrades. You've been listening to Rebel Steps. I'm your host, Liz. Believe in yourself, trust one another, and get organized. Hello, this is Linda. You're listening to Subversion 1312 on the Channel Zero Network. Whether you are anarcho-curious or a hardened militant, CZN's ever-growing roster of programs has something for you. Head over to channelzeronetwork.com to find out more. Yeah, the mentioning that we're experiencing more atomization, I definitely agree. I've been describing it as like intensification of alienation. Mm -hmm. People are feeling more lonely, more depressed. They're self-reporting these things. Apparently among millennials, this is even higher. And other eight generations. And so the local union that I work for, one of the things that we've been really invested in is thinking about developing housing cooperatives and starting mm-hmm. to really get into this organizing model that addresses not just the point of production, but the point of reproduction, as I've heard. Exactly. Do you think there are other things that unions have been doing or experimenting with, or even like case studies with housing co-ops that show how reproduction is also an organizing step towards social justice unionism? Well, you know, it's an interesting question because housing co-ops are not new for unions. In the 20s and 30s, they started doing that. We have to understand the impact of World War II and the immediate aftermath, and in some ways the victories of the New Deal period and the hegemony of U.S. capitalism created a unique situation and the growth of the so-called middle class or middle income people and the the breaking of the class identification, particularly among white workers. So all of these things happen and, and workers, particularly white workers, start feeling like they don't really need unions, that their trajectory into the so-called middle class is set and everyone can get a single family home, et cetera, et cetera. After the mid-1970s, we see a, a declining living standard that has never improved. Uh, and it's the downside of the roller coaster. In that context, reforms like what you're advancing are absolutely Timely, there are unions that are looking at housing cooperatives, they're looking at housing trust funds. Local 26 of what was the Hotel Workers Union, which is now Unite here in Boston, uh, back in the late 80s, was at the vanguard of developing the whole notion of a housing trust fund and to really address the dire need for support for workers if they wanted to continue to live in Boston uh, because the cost of living was skyrocketing and workers couldn't afford to be there. I think that I mean, one of the things that I've been pushing, which I would argue 
should be central to what the union movement is fighting for is to use eminent domain as an instrument for economic development and that we should be pushing for elected officials who represent our interests to use eminent domain against things like land speculation, uh, against, um, you know, companies that shut down and, and abandon our, our cities and towns and have cities and counties, states seize this property, giving whatever compensation is necessary and then working with the workers and those communities to begin the process of a planned, constructive economic development effort. And uh, that looks at things like, what are the needs of the area? What are the skills of the workforce? What does the market say? You know, things like that. So there are all kinds of industries that could be introduced that could be conducted by cooperatives, industrial cooperatives. Now, the part of the political platform, in addition to the domain, would need to be subsidies. Because one of the big problems for industrial cooperatives is capital, getting access to capital. Another is, in some cases, getting access to skilled assistance. You know, so you'll get these cooperatives, which are basically small businesses, you get them off the ground. But if you don't have skilled personnel, and if you don't have capital, these things go under. Uh, and I'm talking about cooperatives. I'm not talking about employee stock ownership. I'm talking about real cooperatives. So this needs to be part of the platform of the union movement. Well, among other things, this clashes with Gompers, the, the notion of the Gompers notion of trade unionism, because what Gompers, Gompers was the leader of a counter revolution within organized labor on multiple levels. So he opposed the idea of a labor party, when we were in a period in history when we might have been able to build one, was certainly been able to build them at the local level. He uh, opposed cooperatives. He opposed, uh, with the exception of the Spanish Civil War, he uh, gave almost unqualified support to U.S. foreign policy. So you have this counter-revolution in trade unionism that Gompers represented. So to introduce the idea of the union movement embracing cooperatives, embracing the kind of economic development that we're talking about, this means rejecting Gompers and going in a different route. Um, and for our listeners that might not know, uh, Samuel Gompers was a leader and president of the American Federation of Labor in the early 20th century. The conversation that you're bringing to light here too reminds me of something that I've been seeing kind of come into tension more recently. And it's this, what I would describe as like the demand for full employment against the demand for full automation kind of movement. Mm. Um, and like people have been discussing universal basic income and that is often attached to 
what some I've heard described as like, or Doug Henwood describes as an anti-work platform, and then also attaching that to full automation. And then there's also the still more, in the classical socialist sense, the demand for full employment in the mm-hmm. economic development that you're kind of highlighting. So I'm wondering, in social justice unionism, what's the demand? Is it for full employment or is it for full automation? The demand is for increasing amounts of free time that workers can have in order to be creative and to live good lives. And I'm not trying to be funny in raising that. I think that's the basic demand. Now, having said that, let's go back a few steps. As Marx and Engels pointed out, Capital always seeks to reduce its workforce. It seeks to increase uh, surplus value by either doing one of two things, extending the workday or by the introduction of machinery uh, and technology. And, um, and when it's introducing new technology, it is doing so not to uh, make the lives of workers easier, but to both disempower workers, which is why uh, what we have to understand is the essence of Taylorism uh, introduced in the early part of the 20th century, but also to reduce the number of workers necessary in order to produce per hour. That's capitalism. That's the nature of capitalism. Capitalism is an amoral system. And it is really important that people understand that. It's the first amoral economic system. You know, one of the things I often do when I'm teaching people about this is I give an example. So I say, I'm from New York, which is true. And so let's say that I set up Bill's Hamburger Company in the Bronx, which is one of the boroughs of New York. And I go to Burger King, McDonald's, and I say, look, I'm not gonna compete with you. I'm not trying to get outside of the Bronx. Just like, leave me alone. Let me just build up my business here, and I'm not gonna mess with you guys. And I ask the people on you know, my classes, I said, well, you think that that would work? And no one thinks that that would work. I said, well, why wouldn't it work? And then we get into understanding the way capitalism operates. It has nothing to do with whether Burger King, McDonald's like Bill or don't. The nature of it. But it also is that no matter what I may say about it, I'm only going to stay in the Bronx. If it's capitalism, I'm not going to just stay in the Bronx. And so that is true when it comes to technology. So one of the things that we've got to think about is ultimately taking on capitalism. Uh, and I mean that in a very transformative sense. But the other thing is this, that in between now and when we ultimately win, we've got to have a situation where the increasingly redundant workforce has 
things to do that bring in compensation. That can be done in a few different ways. One way is something that the late Tony Mazzocchi, um, out of the uh, then oil, chemical, and atomic workers we talked about, which I thought was very, very insightful, which is that he said, we have to redefine work, meaning that there are a whole set of activities that this society does not define as work, which could be. And he would, would have argued should be, much like Roosevelt redefined work in the, in, during the Depression when he sent up the Work Progress Administration and was uh, funding artists. So there's things uh, that there are activities now for which there's sometimes no or limited compensation, like childcare, home health care, art that can be classified as work and should be classified as work for which people get compensated. So that's one thing. That's one part of the answer. The other part of the answer has to do with taxes. And that, that the wealthy need to be taxed so as to create a sufficient social surplus to raise the living standard of the population as a whole so that you have, you know, free transportation, free education, et cetera, that, that even if the individual wages that people get are not monumental, the people aren't, you know, aren't um, scrounging around in order to survive. Uh, now, that's where this issue of the universal basic income comes in. And I'm a very mixed mind because I would, I would argue that it is because of the vastly unfair division of wealth in this country that you have this level of poverty and that giving people a basic income without addressing this division of wealth is the basis for a kind of Blade Runner-esque future. Taxing the rich, uh, reducing the hours of work that workers have to work without changing their pay, as we've done historically, we used to have a 12-hour day. It got reduced to 10, got reduced to 8. And workers, through their struggles, were able to have a living standard that was not plummeting. Um, in the absence of that, you end up having disasters. And let me give you an example of one. I started in the labor movement as a welder in a shipyard. And one of the, and this was in the 1970s, one of the popular ideas at the time, and it took on in other sectors was uh, the four-day week, four-day work week. Now, if I just say to you the four-day work week, you'd say, well, yeah, okay, great. That's not what people were talking about in the 1970s. They were talking about a four-day work week at 10 hours a day. That is not a reform. That's just like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. I mean, in effect, what it means is that workers are going to be thoroughly exhausted 
by the time that they get to that fifth day. And all of their ideas of what they might be able to do at that time are going to be gone. It would be a, it, it creates a situation where it's more likely that industrial accidents will increase because people are tired, right? So what we have to be looking at is, yes, reducing the hours of work that people have or the days, but not with a loss of compensation. And this society can do it because the levels of productivity and the levels of wealth exist so that that could actually succeed. So that's a longer answer than you may have been looking for. But I feel like it's, it's not enough to just say pro or con on a universal basic income. I think it really starts with what Mizaki was saying, which was prescient. We have to redefine work, and then we've got to deal with taxes. Well, and I love in your answer, too, that you say when we win with certainty. So mm -hmm. I appreciate that. Absolutely. I want to finish by just asking you and parting. Where do you see hope and possibilities in organized labor? Like, what are we looking at in terms of the vanguard of the labor movement? Or what are you paying attention to right now? In order to answer that, I, I would say that um, by analogy, we're building a new army. The army that existed with its general staff, its weaponry has to a great extent been defeated. It's been a slow motion defeat that I would argue started in roughly 1948 um, and really took an uptick around 1978 on. And, but it's been a slow motion one. And it goes back to the thing about jumping off the Empire State Building. Um, because we hadn't hit rock bottom, people didn't necessarily feel it as a defeat. And so, so I begin with that, yeah, we, we were basically defeated. And that in the aftermath of this defeat, this strategic defeat, there have been, uh, there's been rethinking about the nature of strategy, the nature of organization. And so you see that, as we talked about earlier, in what's going on among teachers in many places. Chicago Teachers Union, United Teachers of LA, a number of other places. You saw that in the, um, uh, the Teamsters strike against UPS in 1997. Um, you saw it to some extent even in the the, the response by the National Football League Players Association to the lockout. You see experiments that are underway in a sort of asymmetrical warfare against capital. So that's why I remain optimistic, because I see these different things that are going on, uh, various forms of resistance, just like there's resistance against Trump. But here's the caveat. Uh, resistance cannot be sporadic. It can't be disorganized. It can't be uncoordinated. That in the absence of a cohesive plan and narrative, we will lose. 
we will lose gloriously, but we will lose. The Native Americans, the First Nations, in the first decade of the 19th century, had a very unique opportunity to defeat the United States under the leadership of Tecumseh. And for a variety of reasons, that didn't work out. He was killed. And the Native Americans were never able to regain the moment that existed around 1811, about 1813-14. And history is very brutal. It's like when you lose that moment, you don't get that moment back. And so what we have to understand is that we do not have endless amounts of time, not just because the planet is heating up, but because our opponents, through repression, technology, and other things, are weakening the working class. And that is why vision and organization and strategy becomes essential if we're going to turn this around. I remain confident that we can do it. But one thing I will say is this. While I'm optimistic, I'm no fool. I don't believe that victory is inevitable. Only thing inevitable is death. It's the only thing inevitable. So I don't rest comfortably about any of this. Um, you know, I grew up in an era where many of us on the left thought it may take a long time, but victory was inevitable. Uh, I'm not there now. I think that we will bring about victory. Or it's over. Well, with those parting words, I want to say I really appreciate your time, your insights, very brilliant, and it was a pleasure talking to you on Labor Wave. Sure, it's uh, my pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Labor Wave Radio. And just a reminder that this podcast is an independent podcast and part of the Channel Zero Network. And if you enjoy the content, please support us by becoming a subscriber to our Patreon. That's at patreon.com forward slash Labor Wave.